Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good to have you along for the ride today. Uh, we're going to get into it, and it's going to be fun. I know. By the way, because we have the holiday on Monday, I know it seems like it's a short week. Many uh, might be a short week for many of our Bottom Line Show listeners. So don't forget, today's not Wednesday; it's Thursday, <laughs> and that means we've got National Crawford Roundtable podcast coming up, and to kick off hour number two of the broadcast today. But uh, until we get to that point. Definitely going to be taking a look here at how we as Christians can live our Christian faith out against a backdrop of the culture uh, that just says, hey, you know what? We, we Look at what's happening in the world. We get it. It's kind of crazy. But if you live with the end in mind, then you basically are. It's really only about the only way to make it through in the culture. Now, we're going to kick things off here. Talk about living with the end in mind. That doesn't mean that we just go, oh, things are happening and they're weird in the culture. And because they're weird in the culture, we're just going to let it happen. You know, I mean, when you see evil around us, it's important to take up for it. It's kind of like you read the Bible and pray and go vote. Or, you know, you you work and make sure that your tax dollars aren't being misappropriated somehow. Um, more and more people are looking at institutions in this culture right now, and they're looking at them with disdain. Millennials, Generation Z, when you talk about institutions, they're saying, well, the institution of marriage or family, you know, uh, we, we don't like that. You know, we don't, we don't like that traditional view. We want something that's a little edgier, a little more contemporary that speaks to where we are. In other words, rather than looking at the institution and saying, okay, God ordained marriage. We see this in scripture. Marriage is between a man and a woman. The scripture tells us a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They start their own home and the two become one flesh and they procreate and have kids. And then those kids move on, et cetera, et cetera. That's God's plan A for marriage. Now we know that the divorce rate's high in this country. We know it's not as high for people who go to church on a regular basis, but Christians get divorced too. And God does make a provision for a biblical divorce. I've experienced that firsthand as has my wife, obviously not with each other. I mean, we, We've had a great marriage so far and look forward to more wonderful years in the past. But it's interesting to see how our traditional marriage, a lot of people would look at us and say, you know, I'm Anglo or Hispanic, actually, and uh, my wife is African-American. And there are people who look at us and say, oh, man, we know exactly what you're going through because uh, I'm a guy and I have a husband or I'm a woman and I have a wife. And we're like, well, no, actually, you don't. Uh, you really honestly don't. It's two totally different issues. And yet, it's amazing to me, the older I get, the more I study the issues that we're facing, especially in this culture, how many people in the LGBT community or LGBTQAI plus, or I, I'm not sure what the last, every, every time a new letter comes up, I don't always know what it is right away. But it's amazing how many people who come from that background have this dogmatic, fascist, if you will, mentality that says, it's my way or the highway. There's inclusivity as long as you agree with me. Uh, there's tolerance as long as we all have the same values and opinions. And I, wait a minute. That's, I mean, tolerance is 10 people in the uh, uh, lounge area at a restaurant where they've got a big screen TV and there are two teams playing a football game. And half the people want one team and the other half want the other. And anarchy doesn't break out and they don't go slashing tires and killing each other and stuff like that. That's tolerance. Let's watch the game. I'll cheer for my team. You cheer for your team. 
But to progressives, it's total submission. We've gone from, hey, you know, why can't you accept people who have same-sex attraction? Okay, well, that, that's who you are. I mean, that's not for me, and I don't think that's going to go well for you when you have to answer to God, but I'm not going to condemn you for it. Okay, good. Now you have to accept it. Um, okay, um, fine. Okay, now you have to celebrate it. But wait, wait, hold on a second. There's a big difference between tolerating it, saying that's you, whatever, or accepting it, saying, hey, that's you, or celebrating it, because now you're saying, well, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're celebrating this, that, you know, as a person of faith, I can't celebrate someone who willfully enters into a sinful relationship, any more than I would celebrate somebody, hey, you're cheating on your wife, good for you, buddy, let's have a party, I would never do that. But the more that the LGBTQAI plus community is empowered in the culture by organizations standing behind them and let's cut ties with the Boy Scouts if they don't support, you know, gay scoutmasters and et cetera, et cetera. Um, then you get into the issue of, well, what about, you know, these, these people who wind up taking over positions of leadership, you know, whether it's in Hollywood or in the media or in the school districts or in recent weeks and months, the libraries. Have you noticed that how many public libraries all of a sudden, you know, it's like, hey, let's make this a safe space for everybody, are really going all in on like the drag shows and stuff like that, trying to make it, you know, and if <laughs> this is for everybody, it's family friendly, but if a pastor shows up and says, I don't want this to happen, we're going to arrest the pastor. Or if a parent shows up and says, hey, my kid's in there, he's 10, I don't want some dragzilla person up there you know gyrating in front of him the parent gets blocked out of the meeting where's the welcoming inclusive part of that and again i'm asking sincerely if it's such a welcoming environment why do you keep people out if you are so tolerant of other viewpoints why do you try to silence everyone who disagrees with you well you come to find out that a lot of people in this community really are marxists they're fascists the same people who said we've got to stop donald trump because he's a fascist use fascist techniques to silence Donald Trump. It, 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 you see what's going on. Well, here's an example of one group of people who are saying, hey, enough of this. We don't have to do this anymore. There is an organization called the American Library Association. And the American Library Association works with uh, different states and their libraries and archives, this, that, and the other thing to maintain and to run these things. The newly elected president of the American Library Association is a woman by the name of Emily Drabinsky. Now, there's a picture of her here in this article that we're going to post at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, the American Library Association elected her in spite of the fact that she is a self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian and a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Um <laughs> She was elected president for the 2023-2024 year. Uh, she was the president-elect in 2022. Um, the state of Texas isn't having this. Matter of fact, Texas Republican State Representative Brian Harrison announced last month that the Texas State Library and Archives Commission will not be renewing its contract with the American Library Association. The reason is that they elected a Marxist lesbian to run their organization. He wrote, I, uh, the uh, Representative Harrison said, 
I've been made aware that the American Library Association has elected Emily Drabinsky, a self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian, as their president. Texas should be leading the fight against Marxist ideology, not subsidizing it. In a 2022 interview, Drabinsky referred to herself as a Marxist. Quote, I never thought in a million years they'd give a Marxist a chance. In the Austin, Texas chapter of Democratic Socialists of America, Drabinsky acknowledged that she was a member of the DSA in name and contribution, but not, quote unquote, active in the movement. In a 2021 video on teaching the radical catalog, Emily Drabinsky spoke at length about her explicit sexual preferences. And she said, uh, I had access to three sexuality options and I've chosen to be gay. The, the American Library Association is the organization that has an office for intellectual freedom that states that libraries, like public libraries, cannot remove inappropriate books because, quote, children and teens have the right to find the information they choose and no one has the right to make rules restricting what other people use or make decisions for other families. Now, What's sad about the American Library Association, it's the world's oldest and largest library association. It was organized back in 1876. It promotes libraries and library education internationally. There are nearly 50,000 members of this group. But remember, it was the ALA that kept Kirk Cameron from going into libraries. They were literally trying to find a way to sabotage one of his August uh, activities. Texas is not the first state to dump ties with the ALA. Uh, Montana and Missouri have also led the charge as well. But it's interesting to think that an organization that was designed to educate and to inform and to help and actually provide a level of protection of the citizenry has now become activized to the point where this Marxist lesbian woman who is the president of the American Library Association who is actively pursuing people like Kirk Cameron to target and to block from the libraries basically as my wife likes to say she's telling on herself she's basically admitting hey this is what we're all about we talk about tolerance and we talk about freedom and we talk about all these different things but at the end of the day now we're not really about that. We're about telling you what you're going to think and say because it has to agree with us or we'll throw you in jail. Uh, bravo, Texas and Missouri and Montana now for uh, stepping up and saying enough is enough. The children's lives are too important for us to just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to this. We've got a link for uh, this article, by the way, up at thebottomlineshow.com. And it's yet ex exhibit number 7,900 and whatever of what it's like for Christians to be living in an anti-God culture. Not a post-Christian culture, but an anti-biblical culture. So how do we prepare for the end of times, knowing that we're living in a very, very difficult time? Dr. Jonathan Gibson has written a great commentary on the epistle of 2 Peter. 2 Peter tells us about the fact that one day the earth will be renewed by fire. And then there will be a time for us to live together. 
All the wrongs are righted, all the sorrows swept away. But it's hard to think that far down the road when you're living in the kind of world where an organization like the American Library Association that's been serving our nation faithfully for over 150 years is now being run by Marxists who would love nothing better than to make it only accessible for people who want to get this crazy leftist ideology and to keep out good godly Christian values. Dr. Jonathan Gibson is going to join me on the other side of this break. We're going to talk about this brand new commentary on 2 Peter called Living with the End in Mind. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll get into that dialogue coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Well, today on The Bottom Line, we're going to get into a topic of conversation that uh, focuses on a portion of scripture that doesn't always get a lot of attention. But when you think about the world that we're living in right now with the end of the world, you know, looming, and uh, it seems like evil is all around us, um, there's no better place to be than a portion of scripture where you can live with the end in mind. That's the title of a brand new commentary on the book of Second Peter. Uh, the author of that study is uh, Jonathan Gibson, uh, who is an ordained minister in the International Presbyterian Church UK and currently serves as associate professor of Old Testament uh, at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Dr. Jonathan Gibson, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Thanks for having me on it. Let's talk about Second uh, Peter, especially as the title, you know, kind of gives us a little foreshadowing of what we should be looking for. I'm sure many of our listeners have studied this epistle before, but what is it about Second Peter now that says uh, we really should be paying closer attention to what Peter was writing? Well, Peter was uh, writing to a Christian audience that was living in a culture of skepticism. Uh, there were skeptics all around them outside the church, but also false teachers who ultimately were skeptics inside the church. And uh, Peter writes to the church, these exiles in Asia Minor, trying to encourage them to stay steady in the faith and to be ready for Christ's return, despite the fact that the skeptics are saying Christ isn't going to return and that there's no future judgment. And I, I think that's the world we live in today, isn't it? It's uncanny, uncannily similar uh, we live in a world of skepticism, of atheism, naturalism, and our surrounding culture doesn't really believe the Bible, doesn't believe Jesus is real. And if they do believe in the historical Jesus, they don't believe he's coming back in judgment. Mm. And that's what Second Peter is really about. It's about the coming judgment on the world and giving us reassurances that that is true, that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Mm. 
as, as we say in our creeds, and yet uh, oftentimes those creeds get ignored because they're part of the old-fashioned church history. I find that it's the people who are on the search, on the journey of faith, seem to fall into one of two categories these days, Dr. Jonathan Gibson. I wonder if you could, uh, I'll, I'll set the stage and then you uh, take it from there with regard to how Second Peter speaks into each of these situations. Either it's the person who says, as you mentioned, well, there's so much skepticism, we can't believe the Bible's true, we don't believe Jesus is coming back, that you see people who've been in the faith for a long time kind of, I think the term is, deconstructing their faith, um, ex-vangels and that type of thing. Or you see people who are going so hog wild for orthodoxy and church history and tradition and things like that, that they really kind of get wrapped up in the Greek Orthodox. Greek Orthodox Church or Catholicism or whatever it is, saying this is the only way to be a true believer. Uh, talk about how Peter's second epistle helps us to kind of wade through both of those extremes to see where the true gospel really lies. Well, I would point us to uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 19 and 20, where he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Uh, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's speaking about the Old Testament scriptures. Mm -hmm. He goes to say that they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. They didn't come about by any imagination of man uh, or, or the author, the human author. And so he's really trying to tell us, you know, these things have been written down. They can be verified as you read them. And God is encouraging us to take them seriously. This word is fully confirmed. And it was confirmed in the first coming of Christ, where the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in his birth, uh, life, death, resurrection, ascension. And the Old Testament prophecies that speak about a future judgment will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. And earlier in that passage, Peter refers to the time when he and two other uh, disciples saw Jesus transfigured into his future glory. Uh, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration. That's when they went up the mountain and they saw Jesus's face change into mm -hmm. glorious vision. And often we're not quite sure what, what did that actually mean. Well, what it was, was God was giving the disciples a glimpse of Jesus in his future glory after his death, resurrection, and in his ascension, his future glory of when he would come again with the angels. And um, what God was showing them was, this is how certain all of this gospel is. Mm -hmm. Jesus, the first time he's standing right in front of you, but know that this is what he's going to look like when he stands in front of you again at his second coming. And so we have two things to make us sure in a world of skepticism. We have the gospel message about Christ um, and the transfiguration of Christ, that his future glory was seen by the apostles and have been mm -hmm. communicated to us. And all of this has come to us in the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, which are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we can have every confidence, uh, even though we live in a world of doubt and questions about the Bible, we can have every confidence that uh, Christ is coming again, and we need to be ready for his return. 
Powerful words there from Dr. Jonathan Gibson today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about his brand new study on 2 Peter. It's called Living with the End in Mind. And if you're a pastor and you're looking for a Bible study, or maybe a a small group wants to get together and and, and take a a journey through 2 Peter, I highly commend this book, which is up at thebottomlineshow.com. It's comprised of eight different lessons that take you through the second epistle that was written by Peter. And it, it gives us a really kind of a snapshot, not only of, you know, how to keep, uh, you know, living uh, today with the future in mind, but also looking at some of the cultural challenges that the the Christians were facing during that time and Peter's admonition to them. Uh, you talked about the, the dangers of false teaching, and you have a lesson uh, in this uh, book that actually addresses that. And when I see the term false teaching, I mean, I used to kind of fall into the camp that a lot of American Christians did, which was false teaching because people are just weren't telling you the truth. I mean, they they were, you know, kind of a syncretistic type of view of scripture where they took a little of this and then they threw in a little karma and a little Buddha and, you know, that made kind of a, a something that sounded very appealing, but it wasn't terribly biblical. More and more, though, uh, Dr. Gibson, I'd love to get your, your take on this. When you talk about the dangerous and false teachings, what do you say to the people who said, hey, I was a huge disciple of somebody whose teaching seemed to be right, but their life behind the scenes really didn't. I mean, we see Hillsong falling apart, Ravi Zacharias ministries and things like that. I think there were some good godly works that came, you know, fruit from, was born from that ministry, but it was kind of rotten at the core. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, that's a very uh, uh, helpful um, comment and a tricky one, I think, for us to work through because false teachers uh, are known by their false teaching, which is mm-hmm. a deviation from scripture, and also by their behavior, you know, by their fruit, you shall know them, said Jesus. Uh, but also, you know, you have in the New Testament, um, people who teach the truth uh, and look like they're teaching the truth, uh, but deny the the power thereof, as Paul would say to in Second Timothy, uh, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And so there are those actually in the church who can sound very orthodox, uh, but their life doesn't actually complement what it is they're saying. And therefore, we need to question whether or not they themselves were ever truly born of the spirit. Mm. I, that do, Does that mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater? No, we need to just go back to the scriptures again. So back to my earlier point about Second Peter chapter 1, uh, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So we have the Christian scriptures. And while a leader in God's church may disappoint us with his ungodly living or immoral behavior or even disqualifying behavior in some cases, uh, we need to ask ourselves, well, what was he teaching and does it line up with scripture? If it doesn't line up with scripture, he was a false teacher. If it does line up with scripture, then he was a hypocritical teacher. He was somebody Mm -hmm. who... Uh, actually was teaching the truth, but not living it. Now, whether or not that person is in heaven, we'll leave that to the judgment of God. Uh, But we need to discern between what is true in light of Scripture and what is false in light of Scripture. So I think that's maybe, again, a helpful way to think about it is let's put everything through the lens of Scripture. And uh, even the the evangelical teachers who have taught us well, but maybe— Uh, have had things in their lives come out in recent years. Uh, It's good for us to be reminded, A, there's no perfect teacher out there apart from the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that doesn't mean we need to throw out all that they taught. 
Uh, if we did that, then we'd be throwing out everything that anyone ever taught us because nobody's right. perfect. Exactly. So I think we need to maintain that sort of balance of uh, discernment in regards to what did they teach and does it line up with scripture? Mm -hmm. A lot of empty churches and a lot of empty pulpits if we took that uh, drastic measure that you just described. Dr. Jonathan Gibson, my guest today here on The Bottom Line, his brand new commentary on Second Peter is just now out and it's up at thebottomlineshow.com. Living with the end in mind. And this is part of the Gospel-Centered Life in the Bible series from our friends at New Growth, Growth Publishing. We'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, more of this fascinating conversation in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Dr. Jonathan Gibson is my guest, and we're talking about his book on Second Peter. It's a great commentary. Uh, simply called Living with the End in Mind. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We have not one, but two copies of this book that we're giving away today. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. And when you think about living with the end in mind, I mean, that's kind of one of Stephen Covey's principles, begin with the end in mind, that works for business. But when you think about where we are, right now in the culture, and we think about how bad things have gotten. You know, it, it's very easy for us to shake a fist and curse the darkness. And Christians often fall into one of two categories, which I refer to as gutters. Gutter number one is to take an, oh, well, Jesus is coming back, so let whatever's going to happen, going to happen mentality. The other mentality is we've got to fight this thing because if we don't remove every weed in the garden, Jesus won't come back to reap the harvest. The reality is you kind of have to temper it based on what scripture says. So the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus talks about the sower who sowed the wheat and then the enemy neighbor came in that night and sowed weeds among the wheat. The next day, everyone discovered, hey, wait, there's weeds growing in the wheat. What do we do? And Jesus says, the farmer said, we're gonna wait until the harvest comes all the way up. We'll harvest everything and then we'll separate wheat from weeds. The weeds get burned and the wheat goes into the storehouse. So it's, our, it's tough to live with the end in mind when you're in a culture right now that is so challenging and so hostile to our faith. But this is the command that we see from the Lord in Second Peter, and it's our topic of conversation today. Dr. Jonathan Gibson's book, Living with the End in Mind, a commentary on Second Peter is up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this discussion in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. You're a Christian who's been injured, so you need Christian attorney Stephanie Cover of Cover Law to fight for you. With Stephanie, it's not just a routine legal process, it's a spiritual battle. She understands that a legal fight involves more than flesh and blood. It means confronting principalities and powers, and that's why she consistently prays with and for her clients. She forms long-lasting relationships with her clients, just as you would expect from someone who engages in spiritual battle alongside another believer. Praise for Stephanie pours in through cards, thank you texts, and letters from clients who thank her for checking up on them, coming to see them in the hospital, praying, and even finding alternative care when current care is inadequate. Inspired by Jesus' command to love one another, Stephanie uses her skill as an attorney and knowledge of insurance processes to fight for your completeness and healing. Don't wait any longer. Contact Stephanie Cover today at kbrightradio.com slash cover and let her take up your spiritual battle. 
Dr. Jonathan Gibson is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. You can tell from the accent that uh, Dr. Gibson uh, is based in the UK, uh, licensed, ordained through the International Presbyterian Church. He's currently serving as Associate Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, not too far from the headquarters of Crawford Broadcasting. Uh, he's the author of a brand new book called Second Peter, Living with the End in Mind, among others. And we've got a link for that book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Um, as we see, I, I've got to ask you, I mean, compared to where you have been based in the UK, how's life in Philly treating you, Dr. Gibson? Uh, it's treating me very well. Uh, I'm married with to Jackie. We have uh, three children, and uh, two of our children were born here in America. So nice. uh, we, we feel very at home, and uh, we're enjoying life here. Okay, good. Any, uh, any uh, do you like cheesesteak? Do you like, uh, you know? I, we, yes, I'd like a Philly <laughs> cheesesteak. My, my son's also just got into the baseball. He's become a big, oh, okay, I'm a big Phillies fan. Now, uh huh. So. Uh huh. Well, that's good. I, I, I love to see people who have a fresh approach to uh, the game, you know, kind of growing up and appreciating that. So, uh, getting yeah. the cheesesteak at uh, Citizens Bank Park, and maybe you were there for the no hitter last week. I mean, Lord willing. Uh, we weren't, but my son, my son was was there watching it, and not not there, but watching it on TV, and was telling uh -huh. me about it. Yeah, about the guy who pitched a no hitter game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, great man of faith and a local guy for us here in Southern California, so we do have that okay. connection. Um, yeah. Second Peter, Living with the End in Mind is the new book by Dr. Gibson, and we've got it up at thebottomlineshow.com. Before the break, we were talking about, uh, you know, some of the false teachings, some of the, uh, you know, why why. The culture that uh, Peter was writing to uh, mirrors what we're dealing with here and uh, in the culture today. And you have a uh, one of the lessons in this book. It's an eight-lesson Bible study in Second Peter, which is just tailor-made for a small group or for a men's ministry, women's ministry, uh, pastors. Even it could be an eight-part sermon series here if you want to work through this, because you know time is of the essence here with regard to the Lord's return. Um, you have a, an article in one of your lessons called "In Defense of Denunciations," and I would love for you to unpack what you uh, what you mean by that, because uh, we know that sometimes Peter does have a reputation for being, um, you know, a little tough on <laughs> on on different people, maybe kind of shooting from the hip. Talk about where you were headed with that one. Yeah, Second Peter's known as the ugly stepchild of the New Testament, and uh, <laughs> that's really because. Stepchild, also because some people are not sure whether Peter wrote it. I think we can affirm that he did. His name's mm -hmm. at the front of it. But uh, uh, ugly in that it's full of uh, judgment and accusation and uh, denunciations on uh, false teachers. Now, we live in a culture where, you know, uh, you're not really allowed to be critical of anybody. That's not very loving. It's not very kind. Uh, why why are you being so negative? But I think the person we should take the cue from here uh, is the Lord Jesus. He spoke very frankly to the fal false teachers of the Sadducees and Pharisees who denied his identity, uh, called them whitewashed tombs and brood of vipers. He had strong words to say to people who refused the truth. Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament as well, similar again. And so the title for that chapter, In Defense of Denunciations, it's really, first of all, me trying to defend denunciations. Is it okay to criticize? Is it okay sure. to critique false teachers? And Peter, the fact he spends uh, a whole chapter, chapter two, and the first part of chapter three on doing that um, shows us, yes, there is a time and a place in the church for denouncing people who are not teaching the truth. And the image that 
Peter gives us, he talks about they are blots and blemishes on your feasts. Hmm. You know, the church is the bride of Christ, and we're clothed in his righteousness. And to run with that image of a bride, uh, we, we are given a perfectly clean dress in order to be married as a church to our husband, the Lord Jesus. And it's important, as any bride knows, that when you go to your wedding, you don't turn up in your dress with blots and blemishes all over it, uh, that you actually turn up clean and ready for your marriage. And what Peter does is he basically says these false teachers are coming in and they're putting blots and blemishes on the church. Mm. And uh, they're, they're staining the church. The church was made to be holy because Christ is holy. And he calls us to be godly because he is godly, the perfect manifestation of godliness. And so we ought to look like him. But false teachers try to get us to look like the world or to yeah. look like themselves. And so there's a place for uh, uh, denunciation. When somebody is in your ha- your home or your life and they're messing it about and they're making it dirty, there's a place and you know to speak firmly to them and uh, to ask them to leave the house or to stop doing what they're doing. And that's the same with the false teachers. They're in the church. False teachers are not people outside the church, like the secularists, just attacking and being skeptical. Mm-hmm. Peter's saying these people are actually in the church and you have to be discerning about how to spot them. You can spot them by their doctrine and their behavior, uh, but you have to be discerning how to spot them and then actually denounce them, actually expose them to get them out of the church. To sh- shift the analogy a bit, it's a bit like a, a, a virus. The, the New Testament uh, you know, these warnings about false teachers and how to spot them, etc. It's a bit like our body's immune system. It was mm. meant to defend itself against foreign viruses coming in. And false teachers are a bit like those foreign viruses. Um, and one of the immune systems we have is that of the scriptures and godly men teaching the scriptures to us on the Lord's day to keep us wise and discerning about how to spot foreign viruses coming into the body that might weaken and destroy it. And that's what false teachers want to do. They want to weaken the body of Christ. They want to destroy it and uh, they want to harm it. And, uh, you know, denouncing false teachers is a form of the immune system kicking in and Mm. spotting the alien body and going and eliminating it. Wow, what a great illustration from Dr. Jonathan Gibson today here on The Bottom Line, taken from of Second Peter. The brand new commentary is called Living with the End in Mind, and we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I love that analogy of the those outside the home versus those inside the home, because there's a the, the, the indication that uh, uh, you've actually more of a relationship with people inside your home, either their friends or family or friends who are like family, as opposed to someone who just goes driving down the road, makes a derogatory comment and keeps on going. I mean, that that there, there's really no reason to go chasing after them, you know, throwing a newspaper or something like that saying, hey, you can't say that to me. But for us to really monitor what's, what's in, because of the whole idea, I mean, the, 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 the hypothesis here, if you will, the overview is living with the end in mind. That's what Second Peter's all about. And that's how you, you, you wrap up this book. Uh, help us to understand what it means to not be so focused on what's going on around us that we lose track of what lies before us. You've got a chapter in this book, one of the uh, that focuses on living now in light of then. Talk about that. Yeah, so I think living now in light of then, living with the end in mind, it really is the essence of the book. Um, 
I put it more technically when I teach it sometimes in a seminary setting. It's ethics by eschatology. It's mm. it, how to live in light of the future. And, uh, you know, when Christmas is coming, it's coming, we're, we're in August now, aren't we? But uh, it'll be here before we know it. Well, it's it's on the horizon. It's in the future. We start to do certain things in light of the coming of Christmas, in light of a future event. We start to decorate our house. We start to get the tree up. We start to go out and buy presents, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we're, we live with the end in mind. We're always living with the end in mind. In fact, even unbelievers do this. They're all living with the end in mind. And they think there's no judgment in the future. That's their end. You, you die, you go in the grave, you rot. And so they eat, drink, and be merry, and they think they can just live whatever way they want. Whatever your view of the end is determines how you will live now. Your view of the future will determine your present. Uh, your eschatology will determine your ethic. And when it comes to Second Peter, what Peter's saying is Jesus is coming again in judgment, uh, but not just in judgment. He's also coming for his people to save them from the judgment so that they might dwell in righteousness. He talks about living in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Mm. And what he's saying is, if that's your destiny, if that's your future, then get ready for it now. Start living with the end in mind. Start yeah. living like you belong there. So if you're a citizen mm -hmm. of heaven, you should start living like you're a citizen of heaven on earth uh, and not um, think that you can just live whatever way you want as a, as a Christian. Uh, because of the future, because the future for the Christian is a home of righteousness, where Jesus is, where the Spirit is, where the Father is, where other... Uh, people who have gone before us, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, says Hebrews 12, because that's our future, because that's our people, because that's our church, our community that's waiting for us. Well, then we should live like it now. Hmm. I can't think of a better way for us to end this conversation than with those uh, words of exhortation from Dr. Jonathan Gibson today here on The Bottom Line. Again, the brand new Bible study. It's a great book, eight lessons on the book of Second Peter. It's titled Living with the End in Mind. It's a good educational read if you are at home just doing individual study. But if you are looking for a Bible study to do for a small group, men's group, women's group, or uh, pastors who are listening, if you're looking for an eight-part sermon series, I, you could do... Uh, well, you could do worse than working with Dr. Gibson's work in Second Peter. Highly recommended, especially in the strategic times that we're living in. The book is linked up at thebottomlineshow.com, as well as the audio, which is available for podcast and the video at myhopenow.com as well. Dr. Jonathan Gibson, always a pleasure. Thanks again for the great uh, conversation and the great work on this book. Thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thanks for having me. Well, great dialogue as always with Dr. Jonathan Gibson and a wonderful commentary too. Very, very practical. The number of uh, lessons in here that you could use will make it very appealing to you as a pastor or a Bible study leader because uh, it's, like I said, it's very practical, but it also goes through, you know, this living with the end in mind thought in Second Peter in eight lessons. So good sermon series, good Bible study, as I mentioned. And we have a copy of the book linked at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, we're giving away two copies of the book today, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line in a culture that places so much value on style and very little value on substance. Well, uh, it's nice to know that you can live with the end in mind, which says 
put away all the social media influences and the things that you think have tremendous value and let's live people are going to make fun of you they're going to insult you for being a christian but second peter says take heart there will come a day where the purification comes by fire and then we see the new heaven and the new earth so 800-227-5278 this great bible study in second peter living with the end in mind by dr jonathan gibson 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. On the other side of this break, you want to talk about living with the end in mind and understanding real quality, understanding where the truth really lies. You've heard this type of story before about somebody who has that rare find, buried treasure, if you will, in a, you know, yard sale or a thrift shop. The following, what we're going to do on the other side of this break, takes a look at a story like that and gives us a reminder of why these stories are not so much about how much money you make off a big score like this, but rather the hope that lies within us to find what is true and right and noble and lovely and all those different things. Let's take a look at that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, still taking your calls at 800-227-5278. We have two copies of Dr. Jonathan Gibson's book on Second Peter, Living with the End in Mind, up for grabs. Would love to place one in your hands today. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Um, I will be the first to admit that I don't know anything about art. I don't draw well. I don't paint well. I don't have the temperament for it when it comes to, I mean, when it comes to the arts, I can sing okay. And I've written a few things and we have great communication on the program here every day, but half for 12 years, as a matter of fact. But when it comes to the arts, if I walk through an art gallery, as I've done with my wife on many occasions, I am so grateful that she gets it because I learn, learn a lot from her. But I'll tell you, there's one story that we all love when it comes to the arts. And that is the, oh, this old thing, somebody had a picture or a vase or, uh, you know, a work of art, some kind of structure that looked like it was kind of whatever it is. Remember the TV show Antiques Roadshow? I was on PBS for years. People would bring in their old goofy junk and... (laughs) And these assessors would appraise it. And you know what they were thinking. Hey, grandma had these two old candlesticks. I hope they're worth a million dollars. They go, hey, this is really great. It's from the, this period or that period. You could probably get 25 bucks at auction for that. Bring, and then off you go. Uh, I had a run in with this, uh, with uh, an issue with my grandmother, my mom's mother. Uh, we celebrated her birthday last month. So I did a little tearful <laughs> uh, workup on my great, uh, my grandma B, uh, Mabel Benilius. When she passed away, her husband, who had been dying of cancer and died 24 years before her, when he uh, was in his final days, they had a certain sum of money set aside for a new car, and he helped her purchase a new Dodge Pioneer, which was the Dodge version of the Chrysler Imperial or New Yorker, I think. It was only manufactured for a couple of years, but it was a really nice car. And my grandmother, the little old lady from East Whittier, uh, drove that car. She put 32,000 miles on it by the time she passed away in 1984. And my mom inherited the car and we toyed with the idea of selling it, but we didn't because we thought, well, it's grandma's car and we we nicknamed it Mabel. I mean, no, it was was the getaway car for my brother's wedding. I mean, it it was, that was was their limo. It it was a fun car. It was a a fun 
vehicle to have. Around 1992, the timing chain, remember those, started to go, and we had to make peace with the fact that it was time to sell the car. So back, this is before the internet, so I got a couple of, a couple of copies of Hemmings Auto News to find out whether or not this car was worth anything. And I discovered it was worth about four grand. It was a cool old car that wasn't worth a whole lot. I took it to a guy who was a collector who worked on Barracudas. He said, that timing chain thing, you know, nowadays with the timing belts are easy to fix. Timing chain means you got to pull stuff in the engine. It's going to cost me 3,500 bucks to retro this thing. So I'll give you 500 cash. And we made the deal. Now he might have sold it for $100,000 later, but that was the deal. The car that we held on to for all of my adult life leading up to 19, what was it, 1994. Um, it turned out to not be worth that much. Not so true for an antiques enthusiast in, uh, in Maine who came across a, uh, a painting at a thrift store back in 2017. The painting is a picture, it's called Ramona, and it's a picture of a woman who is standing, looking down at a table where there's an elderly woman in kind of black garb. There's a jewelry box next to them and it appears they're at a church. Um, it was actually purchased at a thrift store in Manchester, New Hampshire. And it had the signature N.C. Wyeth on it. Now, if you go into a thrift store and you find something that looks like something like this and it has a name on it, there are companies that do replica prints of it. A friend of mine and his wife used to do this. She was a painter and she made the bulk of her money, not from selling her oil paintings, but for doing these lithograph reproductions that would sell in Claire's and Hallmark stores and stuff like that. Uh, she loved flowers. By the way, their whole house was flowers. It was kind of crazy. If you saw uh, her name, uh, Christy Rapassi on there and you knew what her work was like, you could say, oh, that's one of her originals. But if it was the print, you would see a print that included her name on it and you might not know. So thrift store, Manchester, New Hampshire, um, a woman uh, goes in there and, and sees this thing and says, oh my gosh, this is incredible. This, it's signed N.C. Wyant. It looks like it's a print possibly of this famous painting called Ramona. And basically the, uh, the woman was paying the $4 and she joked on the way out. She goes, well, hey, who knows? I mean, maybe this actually is the real N.C. Wyeth. Guess what? Um, it turns out it was <laughs> N.C. Wyeth. How they got to that story and how they came to that conclusion of authenticity and what it's actually worth today. I mean, remember, N.C. Wyeth is the kind of artist who actually uh, comes from a, a wide range of you know, great artists. Um, Aaron, Andrew Wyeth had a painting in 1980 called Daydream. And it sold for $23 million at an auction at Christie's in New York. So what was this painting really worth once it was determined to be the real deal? We'll tell you coming up next as the bottom line continues. 833-850-BABY. That's the number I've been telling you about for the past year here on The Bottom Line to call our friends at Preborn and make a tax-deductible to donation to save lives. You want a sure thing? Let me give you a couple of guarantees. First, when you call Preborn and make a tax-deductible donation of $28, you are providing an ultrasound appointment for a woman who is facing a pregnancy that perhaps she didn't think was going to happen. Or maybe she's in between insurance and she wants to get more than just a, you know that pregnancy test that she takes at the store. 
Preborn will do the testing for her. They'll do the ultrasound appointment for her and then tell her what her options are because a lot of women, quite frankly, aren't quite sure. They're told by the world, you're either going to have the baby or you're going to have an abortion. But there's the adoption option and preborn can explain adoption. Preborn can explain how to go through the attorneys. Preborn can explain all the resources available to you as an expectant mother, whether you are married or not. So we encourage you to make a donation. $28 provides one ultrasound appointment, $280 provides 10, and $15,000 one-time donation to Preborn will give a new ultrasound machine to a Preborn clinic that needs one. Call 833-850-BABY today, 833-850-2229, or click the banner at kbrightradio.com. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We've got a few moments left if you want to get in on the drawing for Dr. Jonathan Gibson's book on Second Peter called Living with the End in Mind. We have two copies of the book to give away. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. The number to get you through to the bottom line. An antiques enthusiast purchased a painting at a thrift store in Manchester, New Hampshire. It had the signature, or what looked like the signature, of N.C. Wyeth, W-Y-E-T-H, on the painting. It's a painting that was well known to people who uh, were familiar with the work of N.C. Wyeth. Um, N.C. being the patriarch of the Wyeth family of painters. The woman who paid $4 for the print joked to the clerk on the way out. She goes, well, maybe it's a real deal. Maybe it'll be worth something. Well, it turns out that the experts at Bonham's Skinner Auction House uh, did a little authenticity check. And the N.C. Wyeth painting that was purchased at Savers Thrift Store in Manchester, New Hampshire, literally, this is someone who was just looking for frames they could reuse, saw the frame, thought it was cool, and said, oh, I guess I'll take the picture too. It had been stashed up against a wall with mostly damaged posters and prints. Well, now it's been verified to be authentic. It really was painted by N.C. Wyatt himself. And so the question now is, how much is it worth? Uh, even I can figure out it's going to be worth more than $4. Basically, <laughs> she discovered the painting this past May, cleaning out uh, and, and posted an image on a Facebook page called Things Found in Walls, which is the story she think you found in walls, talk about your backyard, whatever. Uh, the comments post uh, on the post led to contact Lauren Lewis, who is a former curator who worked with paintings of three generations from Wyeth. After seeing the piece in person, Ms. Lewis said 99% certainty of authenticity. It certainly had some small scratches. It could use a surface clean, but it was in remarkable condition considering that nobody knew that for the past 80 years it had been bouncing around thrift shops. Now, the painting is going to be up for sale later this week. It's one of four that were completed in 1939 in Helen Hunt Jackson's book called Ramona. That book was originally published in 1884. Wyeth painted the young title character facing her elderly foster mother while a statue of a religious figure looms between the women. There's only one other painting like this that's ever been recovered. And as I mentioned earlier, a uh, Andrew Wyeth painting that was estimated at $3 million sold at auction for $23.2 million. So whether or not this sells for $250,000 or a $1 million, it's still a bona fide classic. But it had a banged up frame, and it was in a location 
where you wouldn't expect it. And yet a collector who was just looking for frames wound up finding a masterpiece. Years ago, one of my favorite Christian music artists, Wayne Watson, recorded a song called Touch of the Master's Hand. And in that, he tells the story of a guy who's at an auction, and they're auctioning off an old violin. And no one sees the worth of the violin. It's all beat and dusty and torn. And uh, who gives me a dollar? Who gives me two? And next thing you know, a guy comes out of the crowd, picks it up, and it turns out he's a master violinist. He begins to play that thing, and it begins to sing like crazy. And all of a sudden, people realize this is a classic instrument. But what it took to show that it was a classic instrument was to be placed in the hands of one who could create a masterpiece with it. What's the difference? It was the touch of the master's hand, is the gist of the song. This painting is a masterpiece, but it was buried away in the middle of nothing. Think about your life now for a moment. God created you, and when he created you, he created you, Ephesians tells us, for good works. You are God's workmanship. Some translation, you are God's masterpiece. But what happens in life sometimes is you make choices or choices are made for you. And next thing you know, your frame's a little beat up and tattered and torn. And instead of being in a museum where people could appreciate the gift, you're stuck in this life in an old thrift store or in a garage sale. That's what it feels like. And you wonder, do you have any value? May I assure you that every human being that God created and will create before the fullness of time has value, is worthy of our dignity. Every time you preach the gospel to somebody, even if they on the outside are screaming and yelling and saying, I don't want this, I don't want this. You think of the Gerasian demoniac saying, what do you want with us, Jesus? Because those demons know they're about to get a new address. When this painting is auctioned off later this month, the real value in this world will be closer to coming to be realized. But the ultimate value is what it meant to the author, to the painter, to the artist who created it. And the artist who create, created your life and my life says that you have far more value than this world will ever know if you'll allow yourself to be placed in the hands of the master. That is the good news, and that's the bottom line. For our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your day. And Rabbi Schneider with Discovering the Jewish Jesus, which is coming up next. For those who remain on the network, it's time for the National Crossroad Roundtable podcast. That's coming up next as the bottom line continues.